We've been working through Genesis for a while now and come to Genesis 17, but before we read that together, let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for uh, your love. Uh, We thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. Uh, We thank you for the work of Christ. Uh, We pray that you would help us to see Jesus even now more clearly and help us to see what it looks like to walk with him. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. 
Then Abraham took Ishmael his son and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male according uh, among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael his son was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house, and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. There is a a certain critique of the gospel uh, that if you believe the gospel, then you won't bother obeying God. The gospel teaches that forgiveness is a totally free gift. God forgives us and accepts us, not because of anything we do, but because of what Jesus did. We are saved not by our works, but by the work of Jesus in the cross and in the resurrection. Which is to say that if you belong to Jesus by faith, there is nothing you can do to make God love you any more than he does right now. And there is nothing that you can do to make God love you any less. If you are in Christ, God loves you right now with the same love with which he will love you in eternity. The question becomes, if that's true, why bother with obedience? I mean, what is to stop someone from, from, quote, abusing grace and living like a devil with the promise of heaven safely tucked in his or her pocket? It's a fair question. Uh, I, I do believe that God's grace is entirely free. And I also believe that we ought to strive for obedience. So how does that work? Here's what we'll see in our text this morning. God calls us to walk with him. He gives us his promises as a motive for our obedience. And he gives us his sign as a pledge of the grace needed to obey. So first, God calls us to walk with him. Think about relationships for a moment, Uh, any healthy relationship. Healthy relationships are two-sided, or at least they grow into something two-sided. Your relationship with a baby, that's pretty much one-sided, right? But as that child grows, he or she takes on more and more responsibility. They, They not only receive, but they learn to give. He or she has a greater ability, a greater responsibility, a greater accountability as they grow. Healthy friendships are obviously two-sided. There is a give and take on both sides of the relationship. Uh, Even so-called unequal relationships, uh, when done properly, are two-sided. You work a job, you put in the hours, you perform. Uh, Your boss recognizes that performance and compensates you for uh, the, the time and energy spent. Now, all of these relationships, any relationship, has the potential for going bad, But when done well, they involve both parties giving and receiving. Uh, No relationship, of course, is ever completely balanced. Uh, One person gives more at one time, uh, the other person gives more at other times, Uh, but there is nevertheless an appropriate give and take in our relationships. Christianity is not merely a philosophy. Uh, It's not just a set of ideas. It it is that, but it's more than that. It's not just something you believe. 
In Christianity, God invites us into a relationship, a particular kind of relationship, which the Bible calls a covenant. And the heart of the covenant is that God would be our God and we would be his people. Uh, Look at verse 7 in our text. God says to Abraham, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And the end of verse 8, again, uh, God says, I will be their God. And and this promise is is expanded and repeated elsewhere. Uh, For example, Jeremiah 31, 33, uh, and elsewhere God says, I will be your God and you will be my people, right? This is the heart of God's covenant. I will be your God, and you will be my people. And this central promise highlights that the covenant is ultimately relational, right? The covenant is no mere contract. It's It's not a cold business deal. It is an intimate relationship between God and his people. I will be your God, and you will be my people, Now, we see a new development in this covenant as we get into chapter 17. Uh, Look at uh, the first two verses. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Now, one of the first things to notice uh, as we come to this covenant in chapter 17 is, is actually the background Uh, everything that has led up to this chapter. God does not here make the covenant with Abraham for the first time. Uh, This is the the blossoming of a relationship that has been around for almost 25 years. Abram was 75 when he first came into the promised land, and he is now 99. In chapter 12, God made his covenant promises to Abraham. In chapter 15, God added to those promises an oath that he would fulfill them even to his own harm. Now in chapter 17, 25 years in, God calls Abram to walk before him and be blameless. Now why is all that important? Uh, Our relationship with God does not begin with us. Uh, It does not begin with our works. It does not begin with our obedience. It does not begin with our morality. Our relationship with God begins at his initiative, with his work and his promises and his oath. And think about it, if our relationship with God stood or fell based on our actions, it would fall every time. But that's not the way it works. It's not the way it works with Abraham. That's not the way it works in the gospel. Our relationship with God stands or falls based on God's actions. He has promised and he has sworn and he has backed up his words with actions in the cross. And Jesus died to guarantee God's promises to God's people. He bore our sin that we might receive God's bounty. And this is why God's call to obedience is not uh, what some might refer to as, as legalistic. It's not legalistic. Why? Because our obedience is not the ground of our relationship. God's grace is. Our relationship with God does not flow out of our obedience. Rather, our obedience flows from our relationship with God. It flows from grace. But the fact that God took the initiative and God made the promises and God secured the future of this relationship does not mean that the relationship is therefore one-sided. It doesn't mean Abraham is not called to act. And so God says in chapter 17, verse 1, walk before me and be blameless. 
Now, the, the phrase walk before me may sound familiar. We, we found a similar phrase in Genesis chapter 5, where we were told that Enoch walked with God. Uh, we found the same phrase again in Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, where we were told that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And the same kind of language is picked up elsewhere in Scripture, in phrases such as walk in the way or walk in the law of the Lord. This phrase, walk with or walk before God, is both active and personal. Uh, God doesn't say, be before me or exist before me, but walk. God is calling Abram to a way of life. He is calling him, as some would say, to, to, to walk the walk, right? God is calling Abram to action. A second, this phrase is, is uh, both active but also personal. God doesn't say, walk in this set of rules. Uh, God doesn't say, walk with these principles in mind. He says, walk before me. And to walk uh, with someone or walk before someone, uh, to walk with someone is to walk alongside that person, going where they go, doing what they do. It's the idea of companionship or friendship. God is calling Abram to act in relationship with himself. Implied in walking before God is walking in such a way as to please him because God sees our actions and can delight in them. Historically, this has been summed up in the Latin phrase to live corum Deo, to live before the face of God, which I would say is, is it's another way of saying to live for God's smile, to, to live to please him. Now, throughout Israel's history, this manner of life will be spelled out over time. What does it look like to walk with God? What does it look like to walk before him? One of the most enduring statements of that uh, will be given in the Ten Commandments. But whatever else might be said, all is subordinate to this active, personal way of life. Walk before God. If you set out to do this, whatever God might ask will follow. Live life quorum Deo, before the face of God. In the new covenant, God continues to, to, to call us to walk before him and be blameless. So Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Or Colossians 1.10, Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work. First uh, Thessalonians 2.12, walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. First Thessalonians 4.1, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. And so are you living before the face of God? Is your life a life of walking with God, of seeking to please him? Now, I'm not asking if you are keeping the moral rules, because really that's a low bar. That's not the biblical standard. If you think Christianity just calls us to avoid certain bad behaviors or even add to that certain good ones, you're missing the heart of Christianity, a life lived before the face of God, every day, every moment, walking with Him. Now, what does that mean? I think, think about it like this. Uh, consider what changes when you get married. 
Uh, no longer can you go through life simply asking the question, well, what do I want here? No longer are your schedule, your agenda, your finances, your grocery store runs, your recreation times, no longer are they just about you. Everything changes when you get married. Now, you may do all the same kinds of things, but now you do them with someone else in mind. Well, when you become a Christian, when God calls you into covenant with himself through Christ, and you respond in repentance and faith, your life is no longer about you. Your life is now to be lived before the face of God. You, you are to walk before him and be blameless. You are called to walk with God in a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing to him. The way you spend your days, your hours, your minutes is no longer about you. Uh, to walk before God means when you have a decision to make even about how to spend the next hour, your thought process is, is not dominated by self-concern or worldly concern of any kind. It's not even that God is somewhere on the list of concerns. I have these concerns and I add God to the list. You are walking with him. His concerns dominate your thought process. His concerns are now your concerns. And so first, God calls us to walk with him. But second, God gives us his promises as a motive for obedience. When we think about a life of obedience, again, I want us to ask why. Uh, why walk with him? Why walk before him? Why be so concerned about what God wants? If I'm forgiven of my sins and guaranteed the resurrection on the last day through faith, why obey now? Now, uh, one answer to that question, it, really we've already seen. Our relationship to God is just that. It's a relationship. God doesn't come along as a door-to-door -door salesman hawking salvation, even the free gift of salvation. He comes along to invite us into covenant fellowship with himself. The relationship is the goal. The gospel is the means to restoration to our Father in heaven. God doesn't want to save us from sin in order to continue in our autonomous little lives, living for self and the unsatisfying stuff of this age. God saves us out of the world of sin and into a relationship with himself. That is what salvation is, right? To see salvation as merely forgiveness, divorce from relationship, is to misunderstand salvation. You may not have what you think you have, if that's all you see it as. Salvation is restored communion with God through Christ. But obedience is still hard. Walking with God is not easy. Our boys have t-shirts that say on the back, if it was easy, everyone would do it. And that's true about many things, I'm sure, but it's especially true here, right? The Christian life is not easy. Uh, the, the world, the flesh, and the devil are against us. We are surrounded by a spiritual battle. We have an enemy who wants to take us down. The, the present age is set up so that it's easier to go along than it is to resist. And our hearts are inclined toward compromise. What resources do we have at hand for the fight? Well, God gives us his promises as a motive to motivate us, to move us, to stir us on toward obedience. Not in the sense of if you obey, this will be yours. God doesn't dangle his promises in front of us as kind of an uncertain reward for the cream of the crop. But God's promises are a motive for obedience in this sense, since this is mine. The love of God shown here should soften my heart to want to love and please him. 
And God woos us with his gifts, not to buy our affection, but to express his. And twice in our passage, God spells out his promises. Uh, Beginning in verse 4, God says to Abram, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but you shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations." I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And then God reiterates those promises with some variation beginning in chapter 15. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. And Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. Now, remember, we've said before that that Abraham uh, holds both a unique place in redemptive history and God's redemptive plan. Uh, He alone is the father of the faithful, but he also is the, the paradigm or the model for what it looks like to walk by faith. And so let's think for a minute about these promises from those two lights. Uh, First, the the uniqueness. God promises Abraham that he will be the father of a multitude of nations. And God here ups the ante, right? He's already told Abram, uh, now Abraham, that he will make him into a great nation, that his offspring will be as the dust of the earth, as the stars of heaven. But here he says, you will be the father of a multitude of nations. God expands that by saying, uh, again, in verse 6, Uh, He says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. Fruitful, nations, kings. Now, if you pause to think about this for a minute, when was this promise to Abraham fulfilled? Abraham would have Isaac. Isaac would have Jacob. Jacob would have Judah and his brothers. There would be, uh, uh, they, they would make up the 12 tribes of Israel, 12 tribes, one nation. Faith, fruitful, absolutely. Kings, yes, beginning with Saul, then David and his descendants, but nations, plural. Eventually, Israel would be divided into two nations, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Uh, Abram actually remarries after Sarah's death, believe it or not, we'll get there. Uh, at least one nation comes from her, the Midianites, his second wife. Esau, Abram's uh, grandson, becomes his own nation, the Edomites. If you include Ishmael and his descendants, well, that's five nations. Now, five nations is a lot, but not a multitude. 
When was God's promise to Abraham fulfilled? Or has God's promise failed? Well, this brings us, of course, to the New Testament, where in the book of Galatians, Paul says this. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 7 and 9, Paul says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And a few verses later in the same chapter, he says, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. In Christ, the child of Abraham, all who believe become children of Abraham. If I belong to Christ and Christ is a child of Abraham, I am counted as a child of Abraham. In Christ, by faith, the Gentiles are Abraham's children. Abraham, the man of faith, is the father of the faithful, Jew or Greek. He is the father of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. In Christ, Abraham has become the father of a multitude of nations. And you can perhaps see how the uniqueness of Abraham and God's plan for history plays into Abraham as then a, a paradigm or a model. Abraham is the man of faith. He is the father of the faithful. And so the model of all who would walk by faith after him. Uh, not a perfect model, mind you, but a model nonetheless a model of what pilgrim faith looks like. And so it's right for us to ask then a second question, how did God's promise to Abraham relate to Abraham's obedience? And how might God's promise to us relate to our obedience? And the answer is that God's covenant promises motivate obedience. Immediately after calling Abraham to walk before me and be blameless, God begins to enumerate his promises. He even takes them a step further and changes Abraham's name from Abram, exalted father, to Abraham, father of a multitude, to, to reinforce those promises. See, God wants Abraham to remember his promises. Why? Why is that so important? Because as we remember and recount and trust and delight in the promises of God, our hearts are won over to God's kindness. They capture a, a vision of things to come. You know, as, as often happens uh, with uh, military men stationed overseas, uh, when Johnny Cash was stationed with the U.S. Air Force in Germany, he wrote every day to his soon-to-be first wife. It's a long story there, right? That's not the point. Um, he wrote every day to his soon-to-be first wife. And, and, and the, the promise of being together kept him going. He had this clear picture in his mind of what the future would be like wife and kids, family life and love, and that picture, that vision, that promise kept him going. Now, if even a mundane picture of things to come can guide us in life, even a, a, here a picture that ultimately didn't pan out in the end, what will happen if we get a picture of the promises of God, the God who is faithful, the God who does what he says, what, what will happen if we get a picture of the promises of God before our eyes and in our hearts? How will that carry us through? Uh, let, let me point out one more thing about these promises as well. Something that's beautiful, I think. You know, God uh, not only makes promises to Abraham, 
here in this chapter, but to Sarai as well, whose name he changes to Sarai. Uh, to Sarah. And, and God has, as we've seen, a kind of tender relationship to Sarah. He cared for her when everyone else treated her as an object in chapter 12. He opposed her plans in chapter 16. But he is as committed to her and her blessing as he is to Abraham. And so God promises, uh, he, pro- he makes promises not just to Abraham, but to Sarah as well. God will bless her, according to verse 16. He will give her a son. She will become nations. Kings and peoples will come from her. Abraham seeks to undercut this, actually, by asking for God to bless Ishmael, his son by Sarai's, Sarah's maidservant Hagar. But God says no. Yes, he will care for Ishmael, but the covenant will go through Isaac, which is proof, by the way, that the Abrahamic covenant has never been passed on by way of the flesh. Ishmael, too, was a physical descendant of Abraham, but through God's sovereign promise. Those who believe the promises are children of Abraham. So God calls us to walk with him. He gives us his promises as a motive for obedience, to spur us on. And third, he gives us his sign as a pledge of the grace needed to obey. Uh, Giving signs as a, a token of something deeper is a natural part of life. Uh, It used to be that that guys in high school would give their girlfriend their high school ring or their varsity jacket as a sign of going steady. Certain gestures, uh, simple, perhaps seemingly inconsequential, can carry deep meaning in the right setting. Uh, It's a stereotype, right, that, that young boys come up with secret handshakes that only they and their closest friends know. It's a sign that they are in, that they belong to one another. We sign documents, giving our signature. Uh, We raise our right hand as a a sign act when uh, sworn in to give testimony before a judge, right? These are all small acts that carry deep meaning. Covenants regularly involve signs. Uh, The sign of God's covenant with Noah was the rainbow. The sign of the marriage covenant in our day is the wedding ring. In Genesis 17, God gives Abraham a sign of his covenant, a small sign with deep meaning. And the the sign of the covenant is this, verse 10, every male among you shall be circumcised. Every male from eight days old and up, whether born or bought, that is, whether physically descended from Abraham or servants in his house. The covenant, again, here is, is not an ethnic thing. It is about God's promise and one's relationship to Abraham. If anyone would not be circumcised, he was to be cut off from his people. Uh, This may be a threat of God's judgment, or it could be a rule for removing people from the community. Either way, circumcision is kind of a big deal. The sign of this covenant is a big deal. And the reason this was so important was this. Circumcision is the sign of God's promises. If one rejected the sign... They were rejecting God and his promises. It would be like your spouse refusing to wear his or her wedding ring, right? To reject that symbolic gesture, that gift, was to reject the giver and what that gesture entailed. To refuse God's sign is to refuse God. All right, well, what does this sign mean? Why circumcision? I mean, of all the signs God could have chosen, why this one? Well, without trying to be too graphic, circumcision is a pruning metaphor. God calls Abraham to remove the flesh 
and God promises to make Abraham fruitful. You see the same metaphor used in G- by Jesus in John 15, uh, when Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may, be, that it may bear more fruit. God is promising Abra- Abraham exceeding fruitfulness, verse six. And so God gives him a sign that it would happen, pruning the instrument of that fruitfulness. Circumcision is a sign to Abraham that children were coming. But it was more than that. Uh, Repeatedly in the Old Testament, beginning in Leviticus, circumcision is used to refer to spiritual realities. It's used to refer to matters of the heart. So in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16, God commands uh, Israel, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Circumcision in the flesh was a picture of the circumcision of the heart. Removing the flesh of the foreskin was a sign of removing the flesh of the heart, that is, removing sin and stubbornness. In Jeremiah 6.10, God complains of Israel, their ears are uncircumcised, they cannot listen. They need to remove their stubbornness, remove their flesh. And Paul concludes about this in Romans chapter 2, verses 28 to 29. He says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And notice, from Leviticus to Deuteronomy to Jeremiah to Romans, this teaching that outward physical circumcision points to inward spiritual realities is the consistent teaching of all of Scripture. This outward sign is not enough. Something inward needs to be done. Well, here in chapter 17, God is calling Abraham to walk before him and be blameless. How can Abraham do such a thing? In Genesis 6, if you remember, uh, we were told that every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil all the time. That's pretty bad. If Abraham or anyone else is to walk before God and be blameless, they need heart surgery. We need our hearts pruned of sin that we might bear the fruit of the Spirit. But this is something that we cannot do. In Deuteronomy 10, God commands Israel to circumcise the foreskin of their hearts and be no longer stubborn. But by the end of Deuteronomy, God promises, after he foresees their rebellion and exile and return, God promises in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. See, if Abraham is to walk before God and be blameless, he needs God to circumcise his heart to create in him a new heart and put a new spirit within him, to remove his heart of stone and give him a heart of flesh, flesh there in Ezekiel, uh, meaning a living, beating heart rather than a hard, stubborn one. How does that happen? How does that circumcision of the heart take place? Well, it happens through the cross. In fact, Paul talks about it in the book of Colossians. Jesus came. Of course, Jesus didn't need circumcision because he was righteous. Uh, He nevertheless identified with us. He was circumcised uh, on the eighth day. And, And then he received circumcision in the cross. Here's what Paul says in Colossians 2. He says, in Christ, you, the church, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands 
by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Meaning in Jesus' death, the flesh is removed. It is put to death. How? By what Paul calls the circumcision of Christ. When Christ took his flesh to the cross and put it to death, this present age lost its power over him and over all who believe in him. As Paul says elsewhere in Galatians 5.24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. See, when we are united to Christ, we receive spiritual circumcision in him and are enabled to bear fruit. Our hearts are pruned, as it were. When does that spiritual circumcision take place? Well, the New Testament actually points to two places, uh, in baptism and in the gospel. Again, Paul says in Colossians 2, 11 to 12, in Christ you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. Well, why should that be the case? Well, because both baptism and circumcision symbolize the same thing, the removal of or purification from the flesh. In the New Covenant, God does away with the bloody rite, which pointed forward to the cross of circumcision, and he substitutes that uh, for that a rite which points to the effects of the cross and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. But the heart of the symbolism is the same, cleansing from sin, the removal of sin. But this cleansing happens through the word of God. It's symbolized in circumcision and, and baptism, but it happens through the word of the gospel. Back to John 15, verses 1 through 3. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Now, the words in those verses for clean and prune have the same root. We are pruned or cleansed. How? By the word of Christ. Later in John, Jesus will say in John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. What is it that cleanses us? What is it that sanctifies us? God's word in Christ. It's the word of the gospel. And Paul picks up on this in Ephesians. When he says in Ephesians 5, 25 to 27, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her, how? By the washing of water, which I think is at least symbolized in baptism, by the washing of water with the word that is the gospel, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. See, we are pruned, we are cleansed by the word of the gospel that we might bear fruit, being holy and without blemish. Christ cleanses us by the gospel that we might walk before him and be blameless. And he gives us his sign as a pledge of the grace needed to obey, right? God does the work of cleansing. God does the work of pruning. The sign is God's pledge that he will do his work. For Abraham, that sign was circumcision. For us, that sign is baptism, the sign of washing, the washing of water coupled with the word of the gospel. Now, you might think, okay, well, I've been baptized. I, I believe the gospel, but I still struggle, I still struggle to obey. I still struggle to walk daily with Jesus. What now? Well, go back to what we've already seen. First, your relationship to God is not dependent on you ultimately, but on him. Rest in and rejoice in that fact. Let it warm your heart with grateful love for your father in heaven. 
Second, meditate on God's promises. Uh, They too can stir your heart toward gratitude and remind you of what God will do for you despite your sin and struggles. God's promises will not fail. Third, remember uh, circumcision and later baptism. They, They are promises of God, signs of God's promise, tokens of his promise that he will purify and cleanse. He will do what he has set out to do. Recognize that if you have been baptized, that is God's promise to you. Ask him to do what he has promised. Ask God to help you. Recognize your weakness and rely on his power. And fourth, do what needs to be done. Uh, to put off the old man and to put on the new. Uh, you know, circumcision, no matter how you look at it, is a kind of violent act. And Jesus told us similarly, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Uh, sometimes we must prune. Uh, we must take drastic measures. We must fight hard daily to walk with Jesus. It's not easy. Now, don't literally maim yourself. But what measures can you take? What intentional steps to keep yourself from sin and move yourself toward righteousness? Take those steps. And of course, don't go it alone, right? I mean, even Abraham on this day circumcised dozens, perhaps hundreds of other men in his house. He was not alone and neither are you. Men, right, talk to other men. Ladies, talk to other ladies. Only together, Paul says, will we grow into mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We grow up into Christian maturity as we wrestle with one another, as we speak the truth in love to one another. God calls us to walk with him, to enter into covenant fellowship with him, to walk before him, to live quorum Deo before the face of God, to make it our aim to please him. That is not something we can do in our flesh. So God gives us his promises as a motive for obedience to woo us by his love. And he gives us his sign as a pledge of the grace needed to obey. And then he comes to us in Christ through the gospel to give us that grace by the power of the spirit. And so God says to each of us this morning, walk before me and be blameless in the power of the spirit of Christ in you through the washing of water coupled with the word of the gospel. Let's pray. Our Father, we hear your call to walk before you, uh, to walk with Jesus, to to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, worthy of the gospel. And yet then when when we look at ourselves, we look at our sin, we look at our weakness, we know that we can't do it. And so we thank you for your promise that you will do the work that is necessary, that you will cleanse us of sin, and that you will uh, remove the sin from our hearts and give us a heart of uh, flesh, a heart of living, beating heart. And we thank you for the promise that you will give us your spirit, that you will make us new by your spirit. And we pray that you would help us to cling to you and to walk with you day by day. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.